Men in Blue, We Love You, my op-ed response that the Houston Chronicle wouldn't publish, The Dangers of Pro-Authority Social Programming. Background. An estimated 60,000 Houstonians protested the murder of George Floyd and police brutality in the summer of 2020. Something like 200 people called into a city council meeting in June to discuss the police budget, most to express support for defunding the police and giving more resources to health and human services. Instead, the Houston City Council voted to increase the police budget for the coming fiscal year by $20 million. The mayor created yet another task force on police reform. At a later meeting of the Public Safety Committee in June, the citizen callers were uniformly disgusted with a presentation made by the quote-unquote toothless police oversight board and continued to call for defunding. You can see some of the comments summarized in a document put out by the Public Safety Committee Chair Abby Kamen. The link is in the text. You can also find the report put out by the Police Reform Task Force, which I'm going to dissect in an upcoming essay. The link is in the text as well. Finally, I submitted this op-ed in response to the Chronicle's piece linked below. The piece had to adhere to a word limit. Some of the ideas presented below will come up again in future essays where I can explain more and expand on the ideas. Defunding of police falls within the abolitionist framework, which seeks to end the prison industrial complex as we know it. Prison industrial complex refers to the network of prisons, private corporations, and related industries that function in the mass incarceration of people. To paraphrase activist and scholar Angela Davis, prisons disappear people, not problems. Defunding of police does not mean, as scholar and prison abolitionist Ruth Wilson Gilmore points out, some mass unemployment program for police. It means employ police in something else and invest in society instead of policing as we know it. No one at the paper responded to my submission. Speaking of catchphrases, editorial, forget, defund the police, the word is redefine. Here's one I learned in public school in San Antonio. Men in blue, we love you. In 1988, I was chosen to pose for a picture in a school newspaper on men in blue, we love you day. Six years old, I'm smiling and handing a cup of coffee to an officer. The newsletter reads, it was a great day for San Antonio police officers. The school had posters of goodwill towards policemen. The students respect policemen and want us to know it. And kids like this make the future of the world look great. As a Mexican-American child, little did I know, the same men in blue were targeting and rounding up blacks and Latinos in the war on drugs. Decades later, not only have broken windows policing and the drug war failed to make our neighborhoods safer, these practices have left a trail of dead and caged, disproportionately black and brown bodies. To be racist, as author Ibram X. Kendi teaches, is to promote, to promote inequality among racial groups, regardless of intent. By disproportionately killing and injuring and targeting black and brown people, police are, in fact, a racist institution, nationally and locally. We need to rethink policing as we know it. But in order to do this, and to understand calls to defund the police, we need to rethink our assumptions and take a look at our country's history. We have been taught that people in uniform are correct, and to believe in law and order, coded language that's been used for centuries to justify police violence used to maintain the social order of the day. 
As sociologist Alex S. Vitale explains in his book, The End of Policing, police rose to put down unrest related to colonialism, slavery, and industrialization. From killing and removing indigenous people from their land, to forming slave patrols, to enforcing vagrancy laws and Jim Crow segregation, to suppressing labor unrest and protecting private property, police in their numerous iterations have consistently used violence to uphold order. Such order has been based on white supremacy and the protection of the propertied class. Police also respond to the despair and disorderliness that results from a society with massive wealth inequality and unconscionable levels of poverty. Notions of criminality, therefore, are often expressed in openly racist, classist, and jingoist terms. People of color and the poor are the usual but not only targets. We've been fed notions of crack babies, welfare queens, super predators, and looters, catchphrases to stigmatize blacks, rapists, murders, anchor babies, and aliens to stigmatize Latinos and immigrants. We're told that anti-war protesters are unpatriotic, Environmental activists who carry out disruptive actions are tried as terrorists. And under the Patriot Act, we violated the civil liberties of Muslims, South Asians, and Arabs after 9-11 because we felt it was okay to stereotype people as criminal. Why do we never hear calls for law and order against white-collar criminals like tax evaders or insider traders? We have to question the assumptions that we have been taught, no matter how long ago, no matter the source. Teachers, parents family, friends, media. Because when you combine an acceptance of flawed notions of law and order with a strict allegiance to certain limited political possibilities, you end up wandering towards some middle position that the editorial encourages. We must reject the hypothetical middle position because more than likely it will do nothing to change the injustice of deadly force police violence or fix the social problems that we all agree police should not be charged with handling crises of mental illness or being unhoused, for example. The contradictory notion of giving more money to traditional policing efforts while also redefining the police is not real change. As activists say, real change only happens when those in power are forced to give up some of their power. You don't upend the power balance with middle-of-the-road ideas. Here, the middle ground is a catchphrase used to delegitimize ideas that might truly threaten power. In the midst of the worst public health and economic crisis in a century, when multiracial uprisings against police brutality have reached heights unseen since the 1960s, the editors seem to want you to think small. Don't fall for it. This moment requires a multi-pronged approach. Uplift people and deter crime with broad social policy. Phase down the need for police and reduce police power now. We need universal basic income, high-quality public education well-paying jobs, Medicare for all, universal childcare, and affordable housing. Locally, we need direct public participation in negotiation of the police union contract, decreased funding for police departments and military gear, and increased funding for social services and community-based solutions to problems such as drug overdoses or being unhoused. Nationally, we must eliminate qualified immunity, no-knock raids, chokeholds, and the war on drugs some of which was included in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that was passed by the House. We should also prosecute white-collar crime, which is often financial in nature and very costly to society, more effectively. Thus, defunding and redefining police go hand in hand. 
defunding, defund police is not a meaningless catchphrase or the result of lazy thinking. It's a profound demand to change our social order, to make policies and budgets that reflect the truth of the words, Black Lives Matter.